Good afternoon and welcome to today's CME activity. There is no commercial support and the speakers and planners have disclosed no relevant financial relationships. Today you will receive a SurveyMonkey evaluation link after, you, um, after we are done. If you're viewing online, I will add the link into the chat. And then if you're viewing after the fact, you can find um, the link down in the description section of the video. Today, as you can see, we have several um, presenters. We have Dr. Manapali, who is our medical director uh, for infection prevention. We have Dr. Robinson, who is a hospitalist medical director. We have April Exley and Nicole Dunn, who are here at the Gainesville campus as our infection control. And we have Jennifer Flint and Jada Marasini, who are a part of the Brazelton nursing team. Join me in welcoming our speakers. Thank you, Jennifer. So I'll get this started. And then um, first I would like to thank all the speakers today for um, agreeing to be part of this multidisciplinary CME that we're going to discuss CARTI prevention. And no disclosures, except you'll see us mentioning a couple of products, but those are the sole products we're using for that specific indication at NGHS. We're not endorsing any products. And um, CARTIs or catheter associated UTIs. Among the UTIs acquired in a hospital, approximately 75% are associated with a urinary catheter. And uh, what data shows is that 15 to 25% of hospitalized patients receive urinary catheters during their hospital stay. And the most important risk factor for developing an infection is prolonged use of the urinary catheter. And um, so catheters should only be placed for appropriate indications and then removed as soon as they're no longer needed. And we may think, oh, it's just a UTI, but I think we have seen um, over the years, and I've seen definitely um, in my patients where the UTI does not just stay in the urinary tract, patients become bacteremic, they develop sepsis, septic shock. We've seen patients develop um, spinal infections um, from a urinary tract infection, of course, endocarditis, septic arthritis. So these are not just simple UTIs, there are complications uh, that can be associated with that. And it's been estimated that each year more than 30,000 deaths are associated with UTIs. There is also cost and morbidity associated with this and estimated total US cost for due to catheter associated UTI is up to 350 to $450 million per year. And the cost of one CARTI, again, I think this is a very underestimated number, but um, at least when I looked at this is what the data is showing, 4,690 to 29,000, but it really depends on the patient and the complications and they do result in increased length of stay in the hospital. And this is the thing, I should have highlighted this in red. Uh, research indicates that 50 to 70% of these infections are preventable. And this is something we can do by working together, providers, nursing, our patient care checks to prevent these infections in our patients. I have a couple of cases. Some of you have may have heard of one of these in our uh, recent MNM. And the first case is of someone who had a very prolonged length of stay. Patient was admitted six months ago for worsening dementia and patient had a Foley catheter throughout the entire six months hospital stay. Catheters were exchanged multiple times, um, maybe every 30 days approximately. Patient had a fever and urine culture was obtained. It grew Klebsiella pneumonia, more than 10,005 colonies. And patient was also bacteremic with the same pathogen and patient had elevated WBC count and patient was started on antibiotics. While with the fever, urinary, um, there's no mention of urinary symptoms here. I want you to note that, but patient was also bacteremic. But what's interesting is after six months, after the diagnosis of the CAR T, Foley catheter was removed after two days. So did the patient really need that catheter for that six months duration? And this is a theme we have noted year after year that somehow after the diagnosis of CARTI, the Foley catheter comes out and patient does not need it anymore. So was it needed in the first place? This is another patient who was admitted with hip fracture. Foley catheter was placed for acute neuronal retention, which is one of our most common reasons why we place these catheters. Um, and patient had one episode of elevated temp. Again, you see there's no mention of urinary symptoms. Patient was diagnosed with COVID-19 on the same day. 
patient had a UA with reflux culture obtained without changing the Foley that's been in there for several days. And urine culture was positive for Klebsiella pneumonia and E. coli, both urinary pathogens, and patient was started on antibiotics. And Foley catheter, again, was removed within 24 hours of diagnosis of the CAR-T. So was the Foley needed in the first place? And if the patient had a fever, no mention of urinary symptoms, is this truly a UTI? Were those antibiotics really needed? So these are the questions we should be asking. And um, how do these infections occur if they're truly the true infection? So the normal bladder mucosa has, um, bacteria, it's very hard for bacteria to stick to it because when the bacteria bind to the bladder mucosa, it triggers inflammatory response. And basically that leads to influx of neutrophils and sloughing off of the epithelial cells with the bound bacteria leads to clearance of the bacteria from the mucosal surfaces. But when you put a foreign body in there, these defense mechanisms cannot work the way they're supposed to. And um, the bacteria don't have to come from somewhere. The perineum is very rich in bacteria and very easy for the bacteria to um, make their way into the urinary tract at the time of insertion, along the external surface of the catheter or through the catheter lumen. And um, we, all have, we all have heard or uh, know about biofilm. And it's very interesting how um, these biofilms actually play a very important role in this bacteria, making their home in the lining of the urinary catheter and result in infections or just presence of bacteria in the urine. So the first step in the biofilm formation is one, the catheter surface has no inherent defense, mechanism, uh, defense mechanisms. So the urine, so the electrolytes, the proteins, other organic molecules in the urine, they create a nice conditioning or cushioning film lining that catheter. And then um, what happens is that neutralizes any anti-adhesive uh, properties for that surface. So now the bacteria go and stick to that. They bring their friends, they all collect together and they also secrete this extracellular matrix or a very slime layer where they can hide under. And um, they're so smart. They also create channels through that where they can get nutrients and all the exchange of nutrients and waste. So this really have formed a very nice community to survive and live there. And periodically they detach from that uh, biofilm. They go and deposit in new areas and start the same process again or get into the urine and sorry, or migrate to the urinary tract and can cause infections. And this is just uh, electron microscope pictures of different bacteria biofilms. So this is again, just a cartoon depiction of the same. So this is just a nice environment the bacteria create along the urinary catheter for their own survival. And basically creation of this biofilm uh, creates a survival advantage for the bacteria. And it's very difficult to eradicate this biofilm unless you remove that catheter. And so they form as a community, they have good communication closely with one another so they can survive. And this biofilm is resistant to being swept away by simple shear forces resistant to phagocytosis by the body's defense mechanisms and resistant to antimicrobial agents because antibiotics cannot penetrate the biofilm well. And we talked about this. So the bacteria are right there and very easy to enter. And study after study has shown over years that once the bacteria make their way, into the urinary catheter, it just takes a few hours and at the max one to two days for the bacteria to multiply to have significant colony counts there. And for patients with an indwelling urethral catheter, daily rate of acquisition for bacteremia is three to 10%. And um, I, I have used this um, information in other presentations as well that in this study, they just took 20 patients, but they cultured the urine week after week for several weeks. And what they noted was that 98% of the urine specimens had more than 10 per five colony count of bacteria. And 77% of them had more than one species of the bacteria. So basically what that tells us is chronic Foley catheter equal to bacteria in the urine, but bacteria in the urine is not equal to infection. So more than 90% of cases of nosocomial capto associated bacteria, these are asymptomatic. 
So when we are getting cultures from a patient who has had Foley catheter for days together, then we're going, if it doesn't grow something, we should be surprised. Otherwise it's expected to show some bacteria there. And most cases of asymptomatic bacteria should not be treated with antibiotics. And I think pregnancy prior to urological procedures, these are the main indications other than renal transplant right after transplantation, and we don't have that population here. And it's not just the unnecessary antibiotics, but that leads to development of resistance and then C. difficile infection. And um, again, we're talking about CARTI now, but our C. diff rates are equally bad. Um, so it's very important that we're able to distinguish between asymptomatic bacteria and symptomatic UTI. Otherwise, we'll be using unnecessary antibiotics. And this distinguishing uh, should be made based on clinical findings. I'm going to just more pictures. Again, this one I really loved just because of all, it's almost like a, as I said, the micro environment where these bacteria are multiplying and just there's so much going on in that biofilm that it's amazing how well they communicate and survive. And another picture of a crystalline biofilm on a block catheter taken from a patient. And urinary catheters, of course, we are talking about infections, but they're not benign. There are other complications related to these urinary catheters, trauma. They serve as a one-point restraint, can increase risk of falls. And of course, psychological and emotional, um, just getting that urinary catheter when it's not needed um, can have an impact on the patient emotionally, psychologically. And of course, reduced mobility leading to thromboembolic events and pressure ulcers. And all of these have been shown in studies that presence of urinary catheters increases risk of all of this. And what is the CDC CARTI definition that our infection prevention is used? Presence of an indwelling urinary catheter for more than two consecutive days, that's two calendar days, not the hours. So two calendar days and presence of at least one of the following signs and symptoms. Fever, suprapubic tenderness, severe pain or tenderness, urinary urgency, frequency, dysuria, at least presence of just one of them. So Foley catheter for two days to calendar days, presence of at least one of these, and positive urine culture for more than 10 per five colony forming units of at least one organism um, that's a normal ure um, urological pathogen. That meets the criteria for a CARTI. So, if you choose fever as you, which is the common indication that we choose to get the specimen, then bottom line, when it comes to reporting to CDC, they don't care whether fever is from something else other than a catheter associated UTI. And whether you even decide to treat the patient or not, it does not make a difference. If all the check boxes are met, that's a CARTI and that should be reported to the CDC. And that's what our infection prevention is used for surveillance to report data to CDC. And no Foley, no CARTI, as simple as that. And just summarizing the information I presented till now. So 12 to 16%, some studies say one fourth of adult hospital inpatients have a urinary catheter at some time during their hospitalization. And each day the catheter remains in place, a patient has a three to 7% increased risk of developing a catheter associated UTI. And more than 90% of cases of a nosocomial catheter associated bacteria are asymptomatic. And 50 to 70% of CARTIs are preventable. So based on what we noted, I think we're world diagnosing CARTIs and most of our CARTIs are preventable. I'll pass this to Dr. Robinson. All right, can you all hear me? Great, thank you. Thank you, Dr. Manapalli. Um, as Dr. Manapalli said, my name is Dan Robinson. I'm one of the uh, hospital uh, hospitalists. Uh, well, now I'm medical director, so that, that's, a, that's a new thing for me. Um, but I uh, just wanted to talk to you about our experience down in Brazelton from a provider standpoint. Uh, we have nursing here to talk about from their standpoint as well. Um, Brazelton has been singled out as doing uh, particularly well with reducing CAUTI rates over the past uh, year or so, and it's taken uh, a multi-pronged approach to that. Um, I think the first step is, uh, as Dr. Menopoli said, if there is no Foley catheter, there is no CAUTI. Um, so 
going through the points, uh, trying to place a, a Foley catheter appropriately and then discontinue it appropriately as well. Um, there's a lot of indications for a urinary catheter and you can see as per up to date, there, there's a, a quite a list of them. Um, and just like everything we do in medicine, the important thing is to reevaluate the need at, at each touch point that you have with the patient. Uh, the good news is, is that our folks with infection control have helped us out by when we put a Foley catheter, there's a indication and it's all of those indications right there. So if, you, the, if the reason that you wanna place a Foley catheter isn't on the list, that's not necessarily 100% saying don't place one, but it definitely is something that's saying, let's reconsider why we're placing one in the first place. One thing I would like to uh, highlight though is, is our urinary retention protocol. As Dr. Menopoli mentioned earlier, one of the main reasons that we place a Foley catheter in the hospital setting is for urinary retention. Um, we have a, a pretty awesome protocol um, that will actually go through uh, step by step. And I'm going to let nursing kind of help us out a little bit on, on what that protocol actually goes through. But uh, what we found is, in general, when we go by that urinary retention protocol, the, the need for that Foley catheter drops significantly. Um, there is also a, uh, 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 when you place it, there's also the uh, discontinue order for the Foley catheter and initiating the re urinary retention all in the uh, BPA that fires. Um, I know like most of y'all, I probably <laughs> am guilty of just kind of flashing through a lot of these BPAs, but um, we're working on kind of uh, reducing the number of BPAs that fire um, to something that's a little bit more applicable to, to everybody. So just kind of keep an eye out for this, especially when you're ordering a Foley catheter. Um, this is the protocol itself. It's pretty busy, uh, but the long story short is, is if you have less than 250 cc uh, post-void residual, just keep an eye on it. Um, if you have more than 600 cc post-void residual, that's where you notify the provider and uh, discuss options about placing a straight cath versus a Foley catheter at that point. And then really it's a, it's a kind of a middle ground where you try a straight cath, you document how much came out, uh, you continue ambulation and encouraging fluid intake, uh, and then try again. Um, and then if the patient doesn't get to void, then you try again. And then after the second attempt, that's where you talk with the provider about doing a, a Foley catheter at that point. There are some handy order sets and links. Um, if you just type in urinary retention, they'll pop up for you right there, including the order, the order set that goes along with discontinuing the Foley catheter and starting the urinary retention protocol. The second part of that is, is, is equally important. So if you have a Foley catheter, the CDC doesn't count it as a CAUTI unless you test the urine and have a positive culture. Um, there are urinalysis that you can do that don't reflex the culture. Um, so if you do have a low suspicion and are trying to rule out, um, that, that would be an option. But here are some of the appropriate testing that we do for urinalysis. And the big thing is, is that you don't want to just uh, test people's urine because it looks cloudy or it smells funny. Um, I know that we get a lot of requests for that, but you need to have some more symptoms uh, of urinary tract infection, tenderness, fevers, SIRS without a source of infection, neutropenia, transplant, those, those sorts of patients. Um, there's a, a pretty handy flow sheet here, but also when you're ordering the urinalysis, it's right there in the order. Um, and so you can, you can see uh, all of those options there. Um, and again, this isn't to say if your patient doesn't fall into that category, definitely don't order your analysis, but it is a, a, a point where uh, you just really need to stop and think, does this patient actually need a UA? The third part of the, the process that we've really been working with in Brazelton very well is, is uh, our um, device navigators. So they'll actually go and review patients um, that have a Foley catheter. Uh, and they've, since October, they've been reviewing folks and about half of the Foley catheters that were, uh, were reviewed were removed. Um, and it does go along to, to Dr. Menopoli's earlier point that about 50 to 75% of Foley catheters 
aren't necessary for those patients. There's other, other modalities to help with urinary retention, urine measurements, um, and, and those sorts of patients. Um, interestingly, in quarter two, since uh, it's kind of a, a, obviously a smaller sample size, we're up to 76% of those devices that have been discontinued. Um, so with all of that, we have providers having a couple of those hard stops with the, the determination to place a Foley catheter and also to do the urinalysis. We have nursing backing us up with the uh, urinary retention protocol and also just with NPR and IDT rounds uh, saying that these patients still need their Foley catheters. Um, and then we have the device navigators. And you can see over the past year, we've done uh, quite a bit better in terms of our CAUTI rates. Um, and not to mention uh, inappropriate abotic use, um, the, uh, the uh, immobility of a patient with a Foley catheter, and a lot of the other benefits of, of not placing a Foley catheter unnecessarily. I think that's all I got. Yep. Um, so I uh, appreciate it. Hopefully it wasn't too long. And let me know if you'll have any questions. So I am Jennifer Flint. I'm the nurse director in Brazelton for the critical care unit. And this is Jada Maricini, also the nurse director, sorry, nurse educator in Brazelton critical care. So we're going to talk to you about some of the improvements we have done over there. So this is just some of our data that we've had collected over the past couple of years. So in fiscal year 21, we had a total of seven CAUTIs in the unit. So we realized at that point, it was time that we needed to make some improvements and really focus on this to try and improve that. Um, and then fiscal year 22, we had zero CAUTIs in our critical care unit. So Jada is gonna talk to you about some of the improvements that we implemented in the unit to uh, decrease our numbers. One of the first things that we did once we realized there was a problem is that we didn't talk about the problem. We were really avoiding talking about the devices that we use during rounds. In ICU, we use interdisciplinary rounds. And what we would do is talk about our problems. We would talk about this person has these devices. Do we really need it? Do we need to progress forward? And during that sense, instance, we realized that we were talking about one thing, but not the next. So we really took the time to implement and build a new report sheet that standardized how we presented all the patient's information to the disciplinary team. And then we also had our charge nurses create a standard of work where we actually spoke about, hey, this was addressed during rounds. This is why we're keeping the Foley or it was identified that this patient was not appropriate to have an indwelling Foley catheter and we took it out. These are the report sheets that we use to standardize. Um, on the right hand of the screen is the nursing report sheet where we talked about an SBAR for the patients and we went into grave detail about head to toe assessment, ultimately ending with every device that's in along with the insertion date. This is a point where we would also, with the chargers as help by following the protocol, we would identify this Foley catheter has been in too long. We need to either swap out or start over with the urinary retention protocol. And on the left hand of the screen is where the charge versus standard of work is located. And that's where they would identify patients with a Foley catheter and their insertion date. The next thing that happened in our unit was, I can't take credit for that. One of the nursing residence projects was to identify the use of MCARE wipes so they originally started off with a analysis of what our current use was. They implemented placing the MCARE wipes, two of them outside of every room, dated for day shift and for night shift. After we started in that, they noticed that there was a significant increase in the use of the MCARE wipes. So now our standard of practice is to have two MCARE wipes outside of every room dated for day shift and night shift. And it's also a good accountability for anybody that who is struggling or hasn't got through it for the day that someone else can say, hey, let me take care of this part of your day for you. Another thing that 
we really did is change the culture of indwelling Foley catheters. I remember when I first started work, working there, I felt like the standard was if someone came in, they got intubated, they got a Foley catheter. And that has completely changed. We provided a lot of education to staff member of what the urinary retention protocol actually is and implemented that on a daily practice. We, or I'm sorry, we started doing Cotty bundle compliance audits. And then we also ensured that we were exchanging the Foley catheter prior to obtaining cultures. Okay. <laughs> okay. So some of our goals for fiscal year 23 is to continue to remain below the national mean for CAUTIs by continuing our current practices that we've implemented within the last year, uh, continue to decrease our Foley utilization within the unit, and also to continue to prior prioritize discussions around the use of indwelling Foley catheters with the entire care team. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Good afternoon. So my name is Nicole Dunn. I work in infection control, and this is April Exley. She works in infection control as well. So we kind of teamed up and we wanted to think outside of the box of ways to prevent cauties. And um, we teamed up with our um, Foley uh, vendor and got together and we did a um, Foley life cycle assessment. So this is kind of just a snapshot. We went around, looked at every Foley in the hospital system. We um, looked at how they were inserted, how they were maintained, the utilization and the duration. Um, so we, so I'm kind of going to throw a little bit of uh, data towards you. So if you have any questions, just please stop and ask. Um, so these are Gainesville findings. So the utilization in Gainesville, you can see it was 88%. So that's out of a hundred percent. And the higher the number, the more you utilize Foley's. And so the lower, we want that number lower. So we are ranked 66 out of 128 hospitals that are like size to Gainesville. Um, insertion. So um, I will say a little caveat. We did two insertions. Sometimes it's kind of hard to grab a nurse off the floor. You know how busy day-to-day um, -day care is. So um, the correct directions for use was 75%. The correct order of steps was 0%. I will say a lot of that was um, getting counted off for throwing away the little pack for cleaning the patient um, before you do the uh, beta dime, and then um, putting um, sterile gloves over uh, used gloves. So the 38 comes from the um, percent of insertion done correctly divided by the two steps. So that gives us the 38. So we are ranked 35. Okay, so maintenance, this looks at our bundle compliance. Um, we are ranked um, 64, so it kind of adds up all the percentage and divides by our six bundle compliance. So you can see only 28% had no dependent loops. 82% um, had the still intact. 76% um, had the um, fully secured with a, um, a stat lock. 100% was below the bladder, but there were 12 Foley's that were on the floor. Um, and then only 22% use the orange duration stickers. So our bundle compliance um, put us ranked eight out of 128. Okay, and then duration. So our average uh, Foley um, days are six, medium five, our minimum was one, um, and our maximum was 42. So um, kind of to reiterate what Dr. Manapali said, the longer you leave in a Foley, the more the biofilm com uh, percentage um, compounds every single day. So you're compounding that 7% every single day at your risk of getting a cauty. So our overall hospital score was a 50 and we are ranked two out of 128. So we also went to Brazelton that day. 
Um, their utilization was 84%. Um, I will say that Brazelton did have some outliers um, because there was a Foley that was in for 200 days. So the, the data does include that insertion. The same, the same thing happened, 36% um, for them. And then their bundle compliance, 13% um, had no dependent loops. 93% um, were secured. 80% um, not were touching the floor. 13% were using the orange duration stickers. Um, and then they were ranked 22 out of 119 like-size hospitals. So duration, and that's why their number is so low is because of that fully that was in for 274 days. And that was, a, a we did dig deep into that um, chart and it was correct. Um, this is their overall hospital score. So what are we doing with this data? So we presented this data to many key stakeholders. We had a round table after we obtained this data. We will work with the key stakeholders on improvement ideas and we have already met and we already have ideas. Um, we are comparing the data to 2019. So getting back to the basics pre-COVID, back to the basics now and um, our vendor to provide possible education. Any questions on that? And I'd like to thank all the speakers. I'll wrap it up uh, by going over the Society of Infectious Diseases and um, Society of Hospital Epidemiology Cardiac Prevention Guidelines. All our speakers have covered all of them, but just to summarize here. So the data that was presented by the um, by infection prevention, Nicole and um, April about uh, insertion observations, 0% uh, actually followed the correct uh, direct or um, required um, insertion process or uh, steps. That is something that's being looked into. And it's one, the guidelines recommend that only trained dedicated personal insert urinary catheters. There's some hospitals, it may not be practical. They have uh, like, just like we have a vascular access team, they have dedicated a team that can only place holy catheters, but it's not always practically feasible given all the different areas, including ED, uh, units, floors, uh, but some health systems have done that. And also ensuring that we're monitoring or we have a good process for surveillance for the catheter use um, outcomes, ensuring the supplies are readily available and conveniently located. And this is just a reminder again, um, every urine catheter must have a provider order and indications um, as Dr. Robinson um, showed in the slides, they should be documented at the time of insertion. And the BPA is helping us to ensure that they're being reviewed daily and the daily um, necessities also being documented both on the provider side and also on the nursing side. And always, uh, if, and we also here at NGHS have a nurse. Uh, the nurses can remove the urinary catheters if patient no longer meets the criteria. We do not need a provider order to remove the urine catheters, but you need one to place the catheter. And educate healthcare personnel involved in the insertion care and maintenance about cardiac prevention, about the alternatives for catheters, and also about the removal of the meet criteria and assess healthcare uh, provider competency in the catheter use, catheter use and maintenance. Again, we have a work group that is looking into this. Um, again, cannot say enough, do not place catheters if they are not needed. Hand hygiene is so important. It touches and plays a very important role in prevention of any healthcare associated infection. And um, very important that we adhere to proper hand hygiene techniques. And uh, at the time of the catheter, we follow a septic technique, use sterile equipment, use sterile gloves, drapes, sponges, and again, clean the urethral meters um, as recommended and um, use um, a small catheter, as, as small a catheter as possible so that there's not much trauma. 
Um, then again, maintenance is equally important. When we look at the CAR-T, when the timeline of when these infections occur, we can indirectly infer, depending on if the infection occurs right away after the insertion, we know it has something to do with um, insertion versus if the infections are occurring um, several days later, it, it's probably something to do with the maintenance. Uh, again, as was found in these observations or the points uh, prevalence study, where the catheter, um, the bag was on the floor and not properly placed, the loops were kinked. So there are all these things that play a role in development of infection. So maintaining a sterile, continuously closed drainage system is very important. And, um, you don't need to regularly replace the catheters and the collecting system, but if there is a disconnection leakage, then they immediately need to be changed. And other thing, when you actually order a urine culture or a UV with reflex culture, which is what we are recommending you do, um, it's important that whoever is going to collect the specimen know why they are getting that urine sample for because you really don't want to be collecting a urine sample from the bag where urine has been sitting for hours if it's for the purpose of ruling out infection. So make sure whoever is collecting the sample for you knows the purpose of why that urine is being obtained and they know how to collect it and collect it appropriately as mentioned here. And also it's important that to get rid of all that biofilm, if it's been more than three days that urine catheter is changed, and you obtain the urine from a new catheter. And sometimes if the patient is stable, some local discomfort, inflammation, even low grade temp, just getting rid of that catheter will get rid of all of that. So you can just hydrate the patient, monitor for 24 hours. And if the symptoms persist, only then test the urine. And maintaining unobstructed urine flow also is, is very important. And these are not recommended. If we don't get our basic steps right, um, again, getting antimicrobial or antiseptic impregnated catheters, there's so many products out there, they're not going to help us if we don't get our basics right. And do not screen for asymptomatic bacteria in catheterized patients, not at the time of insertion, not weekly, not daily, unless, and even in a patient with a fever, again, try to get good history exam and, um, then test again based on your clinical suspicion and do not treat asymptomatic bacteria. Presence of the bacteria in the urine is going to cause some local inflammatory response, presence of that biofilm also. So you may see the UA is also pretty impressive. There is pyuria, which is more than 10 WBC in the urine, there are inflammatory cells. Again, just because the UA looks abnormal, something gross in the urine does not mean you have to treat treat only based on symptoms or in the specific populations, as I mentioned earlier, if they're pregnant or going for a procedure. Avoid catheter irrigation. Do not use systemic antibiotics routinely to prevent cortis. There is no magic antibiotic that prevents an infection. So do not give unnecessary antibiotics as prophylaxis and do not change catheters routinely. Um, and as I mentioned, nurse-driven protocol, uh, whether it's for our urine retention protocol or a protocol to remove uh, catheters that are need needed is evidence-based uh, and followed at uh, multiple, uh, several health systems, and we have that here in place as well. So this is one I really like the name or the, this is uh, don't have a doubt, get the catheter out. And this is again, something um, very important. We need to continue to emphasize it to the nurses that it is within their scope of practice that unless patient had a recent urological procedure or the Foley catheter was inserted by a urologist, nurses can remove the Foley catheters if the patient does not meet criteria. They do not need a physician order for that. And thinking of alternatives, I think most of you are familiar with the female uh, catheter, the pure wick, and we have brought in a new male um, alternative to the condom catheter as well. And that's something, I mean, um, seems to be working well, but we'll continue to uh, look at that as well. So think of alternatives to urinary catheters and urine culture diagnostic stewardship is very important. We work with our lab to update our criteria for when a urinalysis will reflect to a culture. So we uh, changed it a few years ago where they need to have more than 10 WBC and presence of nitrates or leukocyte estrays and no epithelial cells. Only then the lab will reflect it to a culture. But again, as I said, that is not always completely reliable in a patient with a Foley catheter because that UV may be abnormal just because of the bacteria presence. So uh, make sure the catheter is changed before you get the specimen. And one of the most common reasons we see um, urine cultures obtained is fever. 
when I looked at some of our CARTIs diagnosed this year, one was a patient with CNS hemorrhage. Um, we know that can cause fevers, but patient had a urine done, had a catheter, that's a CARTI. Um, there was another patient with COVID-19. Again, urine was tested, no urinary symptoms, that's a CARTI. So fever is the primary indication why we are obtaining urine cultures. And every patient got antibiotics, even in the absence of urinary symptoms. And studies have shown that um, more than 50% of these don't have a true UTI. There is another reason why they have that fever, whether it's a pneumonia, bloodstream infection, a DVT, something else going on. So if we look at that track record, 50% of what we are calling CARTIs are probably not CARTIs. And Dr. Robinson went over this algorithm, but again, just a few things I want to highlight. So in this algorithm, you see more than one of the signs and symptoms of a UTI, not just fever, but fever with something else like dysuria or suprapubic pain or tenderness. Then think of a possible infection, change the catheter if it's been more than three days before you get the culture and SIRS with no clear source of infection, a neutropenic patient, again, as part of the fever workup or a transplant patient, and again, pregnant and prior to urological procedures is the only place where you would do a culture, even if there are no symptoms. And if the patient is unstable, yes, we don't have the luxury of time. So you have to change the catheter. If there are no contraindications, send the urine as a UA with reflux and start antibiotics right away. But if the patient is stable, you can change the catheter and wait and then reassess in 24 hours. And as Dr. Robinson said, do not culture because the urine looks dark, cloudy, foul smelling, all of that. And do not culture urine because of just fever as a sole symptom or sign. And do not obtain urine specimens uh, for culture from a foley that's been in there for more than three days. And do not treat asymptomatic bacteria, how impressive that urinalysis looks or the culture. Um, and there are several studies, again, that show that when institutions or health systems uh, implemented urine culture stewardship practices, there were no adverse outcomes. That tells us how much of this is unnecessary, that all it did was decrease the total urine cultures ordered, um, decrease the number of asymptomatic bacteria cases that were treated inappropriately, and decrease the cost related to the overtreatment and decrease the CARTIs, but no adverse events. And our CARTI bundle actually aligns with our with the Shea and IDSA guidance. So um, I think we have covered all of these already. So I'll not repeat, but um, I do want to highlight a few things. Um, performing catheter care, which is what has been shared from by nursing. It's very important and creative ways how our nursing leaders have helped make sure that catheter care is being done per shift is very important and that has helped make a difference. So when we see improvements like this, very impressive improvements, whether it's in Brazelton and we're seeing some of that in Gainesville, there is also something else that's very important is to sustain those improvements. So we know what works, but we have to sustain that. And that's very important. And that is actually a bigger challenge. And transportation of a patient with a urinary catheter. I think often we see the bag is laying on the tummy between the legs and we're just reflexing all the dirty urine back into the bladder and that leads to infections. And when we were doing root cause analysis, sometimes we have found that after, just before the patient was diagnosed with an infection, there was transportation for a procedure. And most likely the bag was just not staying um, as it is supposed to like in these pictures. And don't forget to change the catheter if it's been in more, more for more than three days before you get the culture. And this is something else I want to highlight. If you're admitting a patient and patient is coming with a urinary catheter and there is no contraindication to changing it, make sure that catheter gets changed at the time of admission in the ER. Do not continue those urine catheters that patients are coming in from other facilities because we do not know how they were maintained. And... Um, that's one, I think we covered all the others. Um, and we talked about not requiring a physician or an APP order to discontinue Foley catheter. Um, and I think one of the reasons why we did this multidisciplinary CMA event is to learn from each other. 
because we cannot see improvements if we work in silos. So we have to engage the key stakeholders, hear from all of them, identify the gaps and opportunities. And education plays a very important role. And when you come up with a process that we all agree on and we execute that, again, uh, the last thing here is evaluate. We have to evaluate and see how we are doing and how we can sustain that important, uh, that improvement. I have a few questions. Um, we'll see how we can do it. I, it's not very fancy, so I just have it here. So Jennifer, do we have? Okay. Just speak loudly. Yeah. Well, for the recording. Yes. Okay. Got it. Um, so I'll read the first question, and we'll see if anyone in the audience can um, take this. Patient with history of motor vehicle accident 15 years ago and spinal cord injury, neurogenic bladder. He does intermittent catheterizations at home. He's admitted to the hospital. And what's the appropriate strategy for urinary management in this patient? Um, Place the Foley catheter because he has a stage one pressure ulcer. Place an external catheter or continue intermittent self-catheterization unless there is a need for hourly urine output measurement that cannot be done otherwise. Or place a Foley catheter after the first failed intermittent catheterization attempt. Anyone in the audience that will take this? Just randomly pick someone. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yes. <laughs> yes, that is correct. There is no reason just because patient is admitted to change what has worked for the patient um, in at his home. So continue intermittent self-catheterization unless there is um, a need for hourly urine output measurement that you cannot obtain otherwise. But we do see, and the reason I put this here is I have patients, we see patients um, with recurrent UTIs and um, they're admitted here for something totally different. And I have patients requesting a Foley catheter while they're here for convenience. And also we see them when we go, when we're consulted and we go to see them, they have a Foley catheter here when they don't use it at home. So we don't need to change what has worked for them as our patient. Next question. 49-year-old male with history of BPH admitted for surgery for fracture, tip fib, right lower extremity, develops urinary retention during the admission. What's the best urinary management strategy for this patient? Foley catheter, external urinary catheter, bladder scan and intermittent catheterization, and suprapubic catheter. Anyone in the audience? These are very easy, straightforward. This one's questions. easy. Which can answer? What is that, sir? Three. Okay, good, good job. <laughs> yes, bladder scan and intermittent catheterization and follow the urine retention protocol. And um, again, even with following the protocol, unless the residual is more than 600 cc where our urologist recommends going straight to Foley catheter, um, if the residuals are um, less, you don't have to put the Foley catheter just because they failed the intermittent catheterization once. You can do it the second time. And those of you who are um, covering nights or covering patients that you're not very familiar with, when you get a call from nursing, patient has not widened for a few hours, then instead of ordering a Foley, ask the question if they have initiated the urine retention protocol, what the findings are, and if they've done that once, uh, intermittent catheterization, ask them to do that again the second time, unless the residual is very high before you order a Foley catheter. So good. Um, next is a patient admitted to the ICU because he's on chronic vent and needed surgery for a heel pressure ulcer. He was admitted from a nursing home. What's the best urinary management strategy for this patient? At the nursing home, they use adult diapers. I give you the answer. Pads <laughs> <laughs> and barrier cream. And he has no sacral pressure ulcers. 
So I gave you the answer. Basically, what this is telling us is some of us may have reservations about diapers causing um, skin to be moist, leading to pressure ulcers. But again, depends on the type of diapers and type of um, the care, turning the patient, absorbent pads, barrier creams, all of that. If done well, it can prevent the sacral pressure ulcers and also can prevent needing a Foley catheter. So just because a patient is admitted, doesn't mean we have to go ahead and put a Foley catheter. We can continue what has worked in the outpatient or at the nursing home here, but we have to make sure again, we're, pro, we're doing all of this um, as um, required or recommended. Otherwise, um, if we keep a diaper, we place a diaper, but we don't change them, they put the barrier creams, um, don't have the absorbent pads that can lead to skin breakdown. But if we do it correctly, it can prevent ulcers and also uh, prevent uh, use of Foley. Take my hand from here. 58 year old female admitted for dizziness. While the workup is pending, um, she is deemed high risk for falls and a Foley catheter is placed. Um, which of these is correct? Foley catheter is beneficial because patients with Foley are less likely to fall. Foley catheters are important safety devices and will help this patient stay in the bed, thus reducing falls. Foley catheters increase the risk of falls and risk of fall is greater than the risk of CARTI. So Foley is appropriate in this patient. We'll take this. Here we go. Three. He says three. Three, okay, correct. Foley catheter increases the risk of falls. And again, don't forget safety of our patients is in our hands. And if you have any questions, we have our team here, we're happy to answer. I did forget to mention, if you're viewing online, please um, enter your question into the Q&A chat and we'll ask. Looks like we have a comment over here or question. I have a couple. Um, so were you when you were talking about the ICU patient and not putting a Foley in and using a diaper, how would you do INOs? Would the nurse be weighing those diapers? Yes, I have heard from our neuro ICU, that's what they're doing, but we need to have a clear process and protocol for that. Okay. Yes. And my other question was, I, you had a slide briefly on alternatives, and I didn't see if we used um, a device called PureWick. Yes, we do. We do? Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then my third question is, um, probably you can answer, the, the orange stickers that we place um, on the catheter bag, I'm assuming that's where it goes. That just has like the date and time and who's responsible for putting those stickers on there. So that was part of the BARDS uh, package. So that's part of the packaging is that we identified this as an invasive line. So like all invasive lines that are going into our patients, we wanna label and date them. So the orange sticker is a label of date on insertion. So it's also a visual of looking at this going, wow, my, my Foley has been in for six days. That's a you know mental note. I need to look at that. Okay. Is so it's the a person nursing, that puts it in whoever, whoever's putting it in. It's okay. mm -hmm. part of the insertion process. Thanks. You're welcome. Any other questions? Comments? Let me check online. I think we're all set. Thank, Thank you. you, team.